So Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read just a few verses and then we'll recap on last week and continue with the second part of that message, which is sort of more about the practical ways in which we can biblically and safely develop a healthy knowledge of ourselves and awareness of our own hearts. So this is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. We're on the seventh message, I think, in a series on the disciplines of the Spirit. And once again, let me remind you of the the image that we're holding as we go through this. It's the image of a boat. There's no motor on the boat. There's a sail, but it's up to the person in the boat to hoist the sail so that the sail can catch the wind. And these disciplines of the Spirit are ancient time-honored ways by which God's people can put up the sail and allow the wind of the Spirit to come and powerfully move us forward in our lives. These disciplines themselves do not transform us, but they put us in a position where God can transform us by His power. We started off looking at meditation on God's Word, then we looked at worship. No, we didn't. We looked at prayer, and then we looked at worship And then we looked at the discipline of celebration and rejoicing, thanksgiving. And this this week and last week, we're looking at the issue of self-knowledge. Let me just briefly recap last week. Um, About a month ago, I read 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 14. And in both of those passages, somebody comes to King David and tells him a fictional story that is designed to expose wrong that he has done or things that he needs to change. And in both cases, he doesn't get it. He has to be told that the story is about him before he understands what's going on. And I was amazed uh, at, at just how much David could fail to be aware of what was going on in his own heart and in his own life. And that prompted me then to think about this discipline of self-knowledge. How good are we at self-knowledge? I mentioned last week about the blind man who came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? He wanted the man to acknowledge his condition. And Catherine actually sent me a message yesterday and she was 
thinking about that during the week and, and pointed out how in Matthew's account, after the, the blind, I think maybe there might be two blind men in Matthew's account, but after, after there's been that acknowledgement that, that we want to receive our sight, we then read that Jesus had compassion on them. So there was something in their acknowledgement that caused him to respond and have compassion. I said last week that God cannot transform what we will not acknowledge. If, if there's something in our hearts that we are either not aware of or choosing to hide because we don't want to acknowledge it, then we are limiting God from being able to transform it. We looked at a couple of cautions last week. We, we want to do self-awareness and self-knowledge. We don't want to do an unhealthy level of self-examination that leads to condemnation. That is not the goal. The goal is transformation. Um, and this is not just about saying negative things. Although in the, in the light of the series that we're currently on, yes, it will be about the things that we want God to transform in us and to change. But biblical self-knowledge is also about the good things, the positive things about us, the gifts that God has given us, the calling and the passion that he's put within us. Healthy self-knowledge also takes cognizance of those things as well. And though we have to accept who we are, we don't want to end up in a place of defeatism where we come out with, well, this is who I am, this is who I've always been, and this is who I always will be. There's no point in trying to change now. That's not the Christian attitude or, or posture. We, we acknowledge and we accept the reality of who we are. We accept what we see in our own hearts, but we don't content ourselves with saying, I'll always be like this. We come to God for transformation and for change. And that never stops. That's not something that happens once when you're young and you come to faith and then you just somehow sit still for the rest of your life. That is something that is an ongoing process. Also mentioned that we have a tendency to wear masks and to cover ourselves and to hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And God wants to take off the mask, take off the covering, come out of hiding. He has provided a covering for us in Jesus to cover our guilt and shame. And we need not hide ourselves. So today I just want to go through a few very simple ways to grow in biblical healthy self-knowledge. And I believe this is vital if we're going to be transformed. We've got to know ourselves and know our own hearts. I read there from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has an encounter with God. And after he sees God, he then suddenly sees himself. And he says in verse 5, Woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. His encounter with God and his revelation about the holiness of God has a flip side that reveals his own heart to him. And he acknowledges it in God's presence. There's a guy you might have heard of called John Calvin who said that wisdom consists of two parts, knowing God and knowing ourselves. 
Huge emphasis in, in Christianity on knowing God, but not maybe enough emphasis on knowing ourselves. John Calvin talked about double knowledge and he says real wisdom. People who are truly wise don't only know God and know stuff about God, but they know themselves. And whenever Isaiah sees these angels singing in chapter 6 and they're singing and declaring holy, 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 Isaiah doesn't get out his notebook and write down some new fact that he has learned about God. God is holy, holy, holy. It's not a wonderful new fact, a new piece of knowledge that I have acquired. I will write it down in my book. And he does not write down in his book, uh, the whole earth is filled with God's glory and just say, well, here's another little factoid that I have now about God. It's not just knowing these things. It is knowing God himself in a way that causes our own hearts to be revealed. That's what happens to Isaiah. Same thing happens to Peter in Luke chapter 5. Peter's in the boat and he's fishing and he's fed up because he's fished all night and he's caught nothing. And when you're fishing and you've caught nothing, you can get a bit fed up. And at that point, Jesus shows up and Jesus says, put your nets on the other side of the boat and draw them in for a catch. And they do it and they get a massive catch of fish. But Peter's response then is not to celebrate this wonderful catch of fish. It's not to just say, well, wow, isn't Jesus amazing that he knows where the fish are? What a, you know, I'll write this down in my book of factoids about Jesus. He's amazing. He knows where the fish are. That's not what Peter does. Peter falls before Jesus and he says, I am a sinful man. As he encounters Jesus and as he knows who Jesus is and has a personal encounter with him, he sees his own heart exposed to the point that Peter actually says to Jesus, go away. In your Bible, it's, it's put more politely, depart from me, O Lord. But that basically means go away. He, his heart is exposed and he says, you just leave me alone. Go, I'm a sinful man. Leave me be. But Jesus won't leave him be. And one of the things that we need to understand as we develop a relationship with God, that knowing a few facts about God just will not cut it. Now, this is really important. And if you're young in your faith, or if you're just sort of consider yourself maybe on the fringes of Christianity, you're there, but you're maybe not quite there. This is so important. Knowing facts about God is not what Christianity is about. A book that Greg, if you remember Greg, who preached here one time for us, recommended to me a couple of, or about a month ago as I was, I was chatting to him one night in the back garden about these things that were kicking around in my heart. And he recommended this little book. I don't know if it's back to front on your screen. It is on mine. But it's called The Gift of Being Yourself by a guy called David Benner. Only a little short book, about 90 pages, but it's been great in helping me think about these things. And regarding knowing God, David Benner writes, it's quite possible to be stuffed with knowledge about God that does nothing to help us genuinely know either God or ourselves. We can be full of knowledge and facts about God 
I know that God loves me. I know that Jesus died for me. I know this and I know that. And we can know a lot in here, but it does not really develop a relationship with God and it does not allow us to know ourselves either. A little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. You know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, he says, knowledge puffs up. In other words, it makes you all haughty and proud and bloated and full of yourself when you've got lots of knowledge, just intellectual head knowledge that never gets down into the heart. What we need is an encounter with God where we know him and he is revealed to us and he reveals our hearts to us. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that men don't want to come to the light because their hearts will be exposed. And there is darkness in their hearts that they don't want to have exposed. They love their sin. They don't want to have it exposed and brought to the light. That's what Jesus says. It's not good enough knowing the fact, which you probably all know, the fact that Jesus says he's the light of the world. That is useless to you if you don't come to the light, to have the darkness of your own heart, my heart, exposed and changed. Knowing the light, knowing about the light is not the issue. Come to the light. Psalmist writes in Psalm 18, 28, my God turns my darkness into light. As I come close to him, as he reveals himself to me, he also reveals me to myself. I'm sure you know of plenty of people, and maybe if you're honest, you even put yourself in this category. You hang around church, you know some stuff about God, but the relationship with him, the intimacy is not there, and therefore your knowledge of yourself is not healthy. Benner also writes that people who never develop a deep knowledge of God, a personal, intimate knowledge of God, will be limited in the depth of their personal knowing of themselves. Failure to know God leads to an inability to know myself, because God is the only context in which I make any sense. If I am made in the image of God, then I cannot fully know myself independent of God. So the first thing, if we're going to know ourselves biblically, safely, in a healthy way that leads to transformation is we've got to know God. We have to encounter him so that he can reveal us. Sort of leading on from that, the second one is to know what God says about you. Now, can you go to 1 John? That's near the end of your Bible. 1 John and chapter 3, and I'll come to that in a, in, a, in a moment. I don't often quote a guy called Joel Osteen, who is, who is a sort of a celebrity preacher in America, whose teeth are gleaming. I think he goes to the same dentist as Bobby Firmino, just these, these bright, shining white teeth. Uh, he's always well-groomed well and, and just looks the part on stage in a massive mega church in America. But well, one thing that Joel Osteen does before he preaches is he has this wee routine that he goes through with his church and they've all memorized it. 
and he walks about on stage with his Bible held up in the air and all the people in the church hold their Bible up in the air and they join him in, in, this, in repeating this, this sort of uh, mantra almost. This is my Bible. This is how it starts. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. And then he goes on, he says some more stuff as well. I can't remember. But I like that. This is my Bible and I am who it says I am. If I want to know myself, I've got to know what God says about me. If I just let the thoughts of my mind tell me who I am, I'm on dangerous ground. Because on a good day when I'm feeling good and things are going well and I know I've done a couple of nice things, I'll feel great and I'll think that I'm, that I'm loved and that I'm important. And on a bad day when I feel awful and I know that I've messed up, my thoughts will be negative and dark and different. We've got to know what God says about us. And one of the things that I love is John in 1 John 3, 1, just explodes as he's writing or as he's dictating for someone else to write. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, that is what God's word says we are. We are the children of God. He has lavished love on us. And one of the most important things to develop a safe knowledge of yourself is to know that you are deeply, deeply loved by God. If you doubt that, you need to meditate more in the scriptures. You need to spend more time just in the quiet place with God, reading his word and allowing the truth of the fact that you are loved. I don't care what you did yesterday that makes you feel that you're not loved right now. That is a lie. You are loved. Repent for what you did yesterday. Come to the Father for forgiveness, but don't go now for a week or two weeks thinking, I'm not loved. You're loved. You are deeply, deeply loved. It is so important as the people of God that we know what God says about us. My knowledge of myself has got to come from a foundation that above all else, beneath all else, and around all else, I am loved by God. Everything else is built on that. I'm loved by God. I am his child. I am also a husband. That's true. But primarily before that, I am someone who's loved by God. I'm a father. Beyond that and above that and under that, I'm loved by God. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a school teacher. I'm a church leader. I'm lots of different things. But before all of those things, my instinct should be if I'm sitting down in a moment of of quietness, or if somebody asks me who I am, I might not say this out loud because it might freak them out, but if somebody asks me about myself, my instinct inside to be should be to think, I am a child of God. I'm loved. That's who I am. And I can talk about my job, and I can talk about my family, and I can talk about lots of different things that, that sort of define who I am and what I do and how I spend my time. But primarily the definition of who I am and my knowledge and understanding of myself is I am a child of God and I am deeply loved. And Paul really wants you to get that. Go to Ephesians, flip left, 
to Ephesians chapter 3. I love Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul just can't, it's, it seems like he can't actually get the words out. He can't, he, he can't describe what he's trying to describe. He says in verse 17, about halfway through the verse, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul is desperate that the people would know and grasp that they're loved. And I, I like, only just noticed this last night in verse 18. He, he doesn't just say that he wants us to know God's love. Okay? You know God loves you. I told you earlier. You probably have a pencil in the house or a ruler that says on it that God loves you. You know that as a fact. Paul doesn't just want you to know it as a fact and add it to your list of facts about God. Look at the word that he uses in verse 18. Only, only just saw this. This is why you need to read the Bible over and over and over again. Because each time the Holy Spirit will show you new things. I saw this word got a hold of me last night, no pun intended. In verse 18, the word is grasp. Grasp. Paul wants you to grasp the love of God. Not just to know it, but to grasp it. There are many things that we know. There are not so many things that we grasp. To grasp means to lay hold of. I looked up the word in the, in the, in the, in the Greek. It's, it's a word, listen to this, katalambano. Yes, get that into you, katalambano. It's a word that according to the Greek dictionary says, listen, get this, to lay hold of so as to make one's own. To make one's own, to take into yourself. In other words, to grasp something is to lay hold of it and take it in and say, that's for me. That's mine. To know it, when you look up the Greek word for know here in the same passage, it is, the, it is general knowledge. It is knowing, it is being aware of a fact I don't want to simply be aware of the fact that God loves me. I want to take it inside and make it my own. I want to grasp it. That's your word for today. Grasp. Grasp the love of God. Lay hold on it. Cling to it. Make it yours. Paul says that it, it surpasses knowledge. Now, what he means there is that, that it can't be fully understood. It's too vast. But as I thought about this and just meditated on this last night myself, I was thinking that, that knowledge alone can't get the love of God. Academic, intellectual, head knowledge can't really get the love of God. It has to be grasped. And for those of you that, that just know about God's love and you know as you're listening to me now that you have not grasped it, grasp it. Just take some time even today in quietness and in your heart determine that you're going to start grasping this truth of what God says about you. You are loved 
and you're going to make it more than just a fact, but you're actually going to lay hold of it and bring it into yourself and build your life on the foundation that my knowledge of who I am is I am a person who is loved by God. Paul writes again in Romans 8 and he says, nothing can separate us from that. Nothing. Angels, demons, height, depths, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. If you try to understand who you are without that as your absolute foundation, you will wander off into all sorts of uncertainties and instabilities. I'm loved by God. Jesus knew this because God said it to him. This is my son whom I love. And, he, and I'm sure there were maybe days that Jesus didn't feel loved. And I'm sure there are days that you don't feel loved. It's not about feeling. It's about, it's about grasping the truth of what God says. Jesus knew who he was. He knew what God said about him. The whole point that we're in here at the minute is, if I'm going to know myself, I've got to know what this says about me. Jesus knew what God said about him. I mentioned this last week. He knew his calling. He would not allow people to push him into a box. You're a king and you're going to be a king like we want you to be or, or, or you're a prophet or, or whatever. He refused to be put into boxes. He was secure in what God said about him. And that was the final word. Last week, again, I mentioned about masks and about a false self, this false presentation of ourselves. David Benner writes that the only hope for unmasking the false self that resides at the core of our being is a radical encounter with truth. And only the spirit of truth can save us from the consequences of having listened to the serpent rather than to God. The Holy Spirit, we're talking about the disciplines of the Spirit, the disciplines by which the Holy Spirit can come and transform us. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in John as the Spirit of truth. And as we meditate on the truth of what God says about us, our hearts will be revealed to us and the Holy Spirit can come and change us. Third thing, which is sort of built on that, go to James chapter 1, please. We're looking at ways that we can develop self-knowledge. James chapter 1. Do you carry a mirror? Uh, guys, I hope you're not nodding at the minute. You should not be carrying a mirror. A mirror is one of those things that there are mirrors everywhere, just everywhere, in your car and in your house and, and, and just all over the place, mirrors. Uh, we were in Ikea yesterday. Going to Ikea is a, is a bizarre experience. Um, we had to queue for Ikea. I had a profound moment standing outside thinking, I used to queue for rock concerts at places like Wembley Stadium and the Stade de France in Paris. And now I'm queuing to get into Ikea in Belfast. It was a bleak moment of self-discovery. There are mirrors everywhere in Ikea, every room, every, as you go through the place, that massive long journey we've got now as a family, we've learned you need to bring chocolate into Ikea. And when you get sort of roughly past the bedroom section, stop and eat your chocolate and then you'll have the strength to, to continue on and make it through the market hall. 
But as you go through Ikea, there are mirrors everywhere. You know, massive mirrors and tiny mirrors and all sorts of mirrors all over the place. And mirrors are found in so many things. Your camera's got a mirror in it. Your telescopes have mirrors in them. Go to the dentist and the dentist uses a mirror. All the, the dentist couldn't function without a mirror to see in round what's going on in the back of your teeth. And then you have these mirrors in hotel bathrooms. I don't know if you've ever encountered these. These are evil mirrors. They're like magnifying mirrors. And uh, you look at one side of the mirror and it's a normal mirror and, you're, and, and you think, right, yeah, I'm getting older. You flip over to the other side and it magnifies your face so that those little tiny lines on your face become huge ditches and, and a, a tiny spot becomes a volcano. These, these evil mirrors that just, sh- just take all of your flaws and magnify them. We are surrounded by mirrors. And the purpose of a mirror is to get an accurate reflection of yourself so that you know what you look like. James writes in in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. James compares God's word to a mirror. He says, if we read the word of God, but don't then take action on it, we're like somebody who looks at a mirror, but doesn't do anything about what they see. And and. What we need to do, if we want to know ourselves, we need to be continually looking in a mirror. But the mirror that we look into is God's perfect word. As we read that, he will show us not our own faces, but an accurate reflection of our own hearts. And we will know what's there. And I would really encourage you, as we've time and time again, and only a few weeks ago talked about it, the importance of a disciplined schedule of reading the Word of God and allowing Him to put His finger on your heart and allow you to know yourself. Lately in the mornings, I've been sitting outside, if it hasn't been lashing with rain, and in my own reading, I've been reading Proverbs, and I've really felt God prompting me that I lack wisdom, and that I need more wisdom. Wisdom that I had a few years ago won't cut it anymore because life is different now. My family is older now. I need more wisdom and a different type of wisdom. Church, I need wisdom. We need wisdom together about how we continue and how we navigate this season in our journey. I need wisdom. But it's reading God's word that has allowed him to to sort of hold the mirror in front of me and show me what I lack and what I need to ask him for. Do you carry a mirror? The myrrh is that disciplined reading of Scripture. The fourth thing that we need to do if we want to develop a healthy self-knowledge is to be in safe community. There's only one thing after this. 
Nothing will help us open our hearts and genuinely look at our hearts than being truly loved and being safe in community with other people. We tend to put defense mechanisms up to guard our hearts from being exposed. We tend to, to, to defend ourselves. We tend to cover ourselves. Whenever we are in an environment of trust, those defense mechanisms are disarmed. And we can begin to really allow our hearts to come out. An environment of loving, trusted friendship can be a wonderful place to grow in self-knowledge. It is a rare thing to find, though. It's a beautiful thing to have, but it's a rare thing to be able to truly unmask and truly pour out your heart and, and trust another person to handle that with care. You need to be careful who you give your heart to. Because if you give your heart in, in trust to the wrong person, they can wreak havoc with your heart and wreak havoc with your mind. You need to be careful of the context in which you open your heart. And again, something that struck me in a book that I've read many times in, in John chapter 13 sort of illustrates this point. If you can go to John 13, I just I want you to see something in your own Bible in John 13. I don't know how many times I've read John, but it's a lot. I'm sure probably 30 or 40 times over the years that I've read through this book and I have taught through it and preached through it several times. But something just hit me the last time I looked through John 13. If you've got a red letter Bible, have a look at John 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17. They are nearly all red. Now, what that means is that those are the words of Jesus. Um, So starting at John 17 and going backwards. John 17 is all red in my Bible, apart from a couple of words at the start. John 16 is nearly all red. John 15 and 14 are nearly all red. And the end of John 13 is pretty much red. Now, Jesus talks continuously at this point. He absolutely shares his heart with the disciples. 14, 15, 16, 17, just all Jesus pouring out what's going to happen, talking about the Holy Spirit, allowing them to hear him in intimate prayer with his Father. It's all Jesus. It's all his heart, and it's all coming out on the table. Something struck me in John 13, verse 31, when I went through it last week. John 13, 31 says, seems just a bit random, but stick with me. When he was gone, Jesus said. When who was gone? When he was gone, Jesus said. When somebody left the room, Jesus opened his heart for four and a half chapters. And the person who left the room, if you read verse 30, was Judas. And I think there's something to learn there. Jesus did not share his heart until Judas left the room. Judas was the critic. Judas was the guy who looked at somebody else worshiping Jesus in John 12, pouring out perfume on Jesus' feet 
just a lavish act of devotion and worship. Judas was the guy who looked at somebody else while they were worshiping God and didn't like it. It was too much. It was over the top. I don't I look I look at that woman worshiping Jesus and I don't like what I see. And Jesus did not fully open his heart until Judas had left the room. He washed Judas's feet himself. He washed Judas's. You've got to be secure in who you are. And in fact, at the start of John 13, we read that Jesus knows he'd come from the Father. He knows he's gone to the Father. He's secure in his Father and what God says about him. And if you are secure in who you are in God, you can wash Judas's feet. You can still show love to someone like Judas. But it's only when Judas leaves the room. I can almost picture Jesus just lying back sighing, breathing out, and just completely relaxing. And he puts his heart on the table with the 11 remaining disciples, and he gives them everything that's within him. We can do likewise when we're in trusted, loving community. We can expose our hearts, but don't do it when Judas is in the room. Don't do it when the critic is there. Wait until he's gone. And finally, the last thing that I would advise, there are more, but the last thing to, to know your heart is to pray what's called an examine. Go to Psalm 139 to show you a model for this. Psalm 139. The word examine is a word that we don't normally think of in August in the educational uh, community, maybe until the middle of the month, but Examine is spelled E-X-A-M-E-N. It's a Latin word, examine. And what it literally means is if you've got weighing scales in the kitchen for using when you're baking, there's a little pointer on the scales. And that little pointer is probably just a wee black triangle. And as the scale moves, it points to, to whatever mass you've weighed out. That little pointer in Latin is called an examine. And what the word means is then an accurate assessment or an accurate measurement of something. And what Christians have done throughout the centuries is involve themselves or engage themselves in a process of examine, which is a way of inviting God to really expose their hearts every day Ignatius would have done this at the end of the day. He would have gone through this process of the examine. And a great prayer to pray when you're doing this is at the end of Psalm 139. I would encourage you, get this into your daily prayer life. At least pray it several times a week. The last two verses of Psalm 139. It's great to pray this as well when you're going through difficult times and you're becoming fantastically good at looking at specks in other people's eyes okay if there if there are people who are causing you pain to stop looking at them and to pray this prayer psalm 139 verse 23 search me all right search me O god and know my heart not them don't change them unless you want to change me Search me 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a powerful way to pray, to invite God to reveal your heart. God, search me. Know my heart. Show me any wickedness in me. Instead of me looking at those around me and pointing the finger and pointing blame and saying, my pain is a result of this or that or the other thing, it may be, but in the, moment, in the midst of all of that, say, God, will you please show me my own heart and if there's anything I need to change. Peter, I mentioned earlier, is an example of a guy who did not know his heart. And with this, I close. He thought he was the finished article. Whenever we think we have arrived, we only show how far away we truly are. Whenever we think we've made it, we, we're, we just show our ignorance. Peter thought he was there. He thought he was the finished article. He said to Jesus, I will never deny you. I will not leave you. Others may leave you. Everybody else might run away, but I will not deny you. I'll die with you if I have to. He, he did not know his own heart. I believe he was completely sincere when he said to Jesus, I'll never leave you. That was his intention. That was what he wanted to do, but he was not aware of his own heart. And through the pain of the cross and the pain of the trial that night, when Peter betrayed Jesus three times, through that, Peter's own heart was exposed to him. And he saw what was within that for three years he hadn't seen. So confident, so sure of himself. But it took this moment of incredible darkness and pain for what was inside him to come out. You will find that as a principle in life. Times of trauma reveal the heart. Times of pressure and times of pain expose what's actually inside us. And Peter that night had his heart exposed as he went through pain. And the question is, and I'll I'll leave you with this, the question for Peter, having had his heart exposed, what will he then do? Back in Luke chapter 5, again, this is something that I haven't, and I've looked at these two passages before, and I've preached on them before, and I've compared them together before. In Luke chapter 5, I've never seen this. Peter, whenever he gets a revelation of who Jesus is, Peter falls before Jesus. He has a revelation of his own heart, and he says to Jesus, go away. But after the cross and after the resurrection, when he again has had a revelation of his heart and he knows that there's ugly stuff in there that has come out over that night when he denied Jesus three times, he does not get out of the boat in John 21 and tell Jesus to go away. He gets out of the boat and he swims to shore with his clothes on, hard work, and he stands before Jesus because he knows that he needs his heart transformed. He knows that he needs to be restored. And Jesus does that. 
for each time that Peter has denied, for each exposure of the ugliness within his heart, Jesus invites Peter to be restored and to declare once again his love. And Jesus recommissions him. Doesn't give up on him, doesn't demote him, doesn't say, Peter, I wanted to build my church in you, but you messed up, so I'm going to bring you down a few pegs and build my church in somebody else instead. No, he recommissions Peter to go and shepherd his flock. But Peter had the choice, as all of us do, whenever pain or trauma or anything has exposed our hearts, we then have the choice, do we tell Jesus to go away? Do we put on the fig leaf? Do we put on the covering and hide in the bushes? Or do you dive into the water and do the hard work of swimming to shore? Because we know that only he can restore and transform the heart that has now been exposed to us. Let's pray as we finish off.